just just me this morning was that worship powerful amen absolutely incredible so grateful to serve here uh, with our worship team so hey listen uh, let, me, let me give you some what, I, what I'm going to call sermon delivery 101 okay uh, you never know God may be calling some of you to preach one day and you need to know what you're doing okay and so here's sermon delivery number one always start off your sermon boldly uh, with a statement or, or a, a story that draws people in and uh, so never start off your sermon uh, with anything that doesn't grab people's attention. Uh, don't don't start off with an apology. Don't don't you dare uh, apologize for speaking about what God has clearly spoken on. So don't start off with an apology or some kind of a half hearted disclaimer. OK, so just a little advice here in case God calls you to preach. So let me give you this disclaimer. All right. Uh, this is not going to be a normal message and it's going to be a little, little different this morning. Uh, and uh, but but. Uh, it's really not going to be much of a sermon at the end, but let's just be honest, who, who really likes sermons, right? And so uh, so this this uh, message is kind of uh, totally different. So if you're a guest, not not normal, uh, totally different from my style, uh, the way that I teach, the way that I deliver, the way that I communicate, uh, just a totally different uh, conversation uh, this morning. It wasn't planned. Well, it wasn't a part of the series that I had planned out. I know I don't know if it actually, uh, you can tell or not, we actually plan out the teaching that we do here. Uh, sometimes it may not seem that way, but we didn't plan it. Uh, I gave up a lot of control for the sermon. I just said, hey, whatever you want to talk about on this subject, I'm willing to answer it. Uh, and so, it, so it's not so much a sermon in my normal style, uh, but a little more of a conversation this morning, a little, little more of a, a talk, uh, but nonetheless on an incredibly uh, important subject. Now, if you haven't been here with us, uh, you say, what, what's this all about? We, we've been on a series uh, called Revive Us Again. And we've been talking about the idea of personal and corporate revival and what that looks like. And we start off preaching out of Psalm 85, which is a prayer for revival. And we talked about and learned in there uh, that revival is a uh, grace gift from a sovereign God. We, we can't manufacture revival. Uh, we can't work it up. We can't uh, schedule it on the calendar. Uh, that is something that God chooses to do in the life of his church. Uh, however, that does not mean that there aren't some things that we can do to put ourselves in a position to receive revival should God choose to send it. And so we had talked about uh, uh, pre-existing conditions. That what does it look like in Scripture and in history? What were some of the things that were going on in the hearts of the people before God sent a movement that we would call revival when God saturated His people uh, with His presence? And uh, so I'd say, hey, uh, this is number one, five-week series is on this is what revival looks like. And uh, we'll go three weeks about Pre-existing conditions, this is what usually needs to happen in the hearts of the people. And then we're going to wrap it up on March the 3rd with a message uh, about why revival tarries. Okay? And so we start off pre-existing conditions. Number one, we said repentance, uh, face in the dirt uh, before a holy God, a right view of God, and returning back to Him after a period of indifference or decline. And then last week, I said uh, getting rid of bitterness. And we dealt with forgiveness uh, last week. Okay? And then this week... I was going to preach on pre-existing condition number three, which is prayer and fasting, right? Any great movement of God can be traced back, D.L. Moody said, to one single kneeling figure. Every single time, he said. You can trace it back to one single kneeling figure. However, here's what happened. So last week, uh, I preached on uh, uh, bitterness and, and forgiveness. And uh, so after, the, after both services, multiple, multiple, multiple conversations... Hey, I appreciate what you said today I'm, and, and help me walk through this. And well, what about this? And, and what about in this context? And what about when they do this? And how do I respond to this? And, and so all these questions. And so same thing, second service, first service in between. And then that that week, uh, matter of fact, that afternoon, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, I started getting emails. Hey, listen, I appreciate what you said, but I got I got another question and, and you didn't touch this. And so so how to handle this? 
and then more emails on Monday and then more emails on Tuesday. Uh, okay, and then on Wednesday, uh, two two of our staff members came and said, "Hey, you know that message you preached? I spent lots of time tonight dealing with that message and questions. And what about this? And what, what does this look like? All right. And uh, so, so then here, here's what happened. Now, usually as a rule of thumb, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Usually, okay. But when God seems to be dealing with people's hearts on an issue, it's probably a wise decision to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your preaching. Okay. And let's just be honest. Who wants to talk about fasting? Amen." Right. And so I so I here's what I did. I just I uh, talked to our staff. And I said, you know, what? I, I wasn't going here, but I feel like that God is leading us here. And I don't mean that some super spiritual God, you know, God's leading. I genuinely felt that. And so our staff said, hey, we, we couldn't agree more. Uh, it's a great idea. We think you should. Do that. So, so, hey, listen, let, let's do this. Let's do something totally different. I said, let's just send out. Say, here's what I'm preaching on. And uh, what, what are your questions? And to say that I got a few emails would be a gross understatement. I mean, my inbox was flooded with emails, short emails, one sentence emails, uh, uh, small books in my inbox. OK, uh, d- dissertations. Uh, I mean, just so overwhelming. So, so here, here's what we're going to do today. I, I'm going to uh, kind of have more of a chat uh, this this morning uh, about uh, forgiveness. OK, and, and basically what's happened is I'm, I'm going to teach some general principles, just review some things we talked about last week so we can see the contrast. I'm going to give you a couple of just general statements about what forgiveness is not, which is the title of our talk today. And then I, I really let you shape the message. I've just taken your questions literally, and, and I'm just going to kind of do a little Q&A this morning and say, hey, listen, here are the questions you had, because, because here's what I understand. If, if you can't understand a truth, you can't apply a truth. And if you don't apply it, you're not changed. You see, it's not awareness that produces change. It's application. All right. And so so I just kind of let you craft the message. And so uh, so th- this morning I'm letting the inmates run the asylum and I'm a nervous wreck. All right. And so so here's what I do. Take your Bibles and turn to Second Corinthians chapter two again this week. And uh, we're, we're going to revisit this issue. And, and the reason we're going to go back to the text last week is I'm just going to take a minute or two and just remind you of, of the principles and the benefits of forgiveness so that you can see the contrast of what forgiveness is not. OK, and we'll spend most of our time there this morning talking about the contrast uh, of what forgiveness is not. All right. So Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, and uh, we're going to pick it up just like we did last week in verses uh, three through eleven. All right. Second Corinthians two, beginning verse three. He says, and I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent not to be uh, too severe. So in other words, uh, there have been someone who had offended them. Who needed their forgiveness at, at a point in time? A lot of people go back to First Corinthians chapter five. The person in First Corinthians chapter five, the church member who was unrepentant, they had to remove him or excommunicate him, an act of church discipline from the church. A lot of scholars say this is who they're referring back to. Although I wouldn't be uh, dogmatic about it. Okay, so he says this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So he said, Hey, listen, I know it was tough, but it's the right thing to do. This guy wasn't repentant, so you, you, you did the right thing. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So what's implied here is if it is this person, they've come to the point of repentance and he's saying, hey, listen, I know you still may be angry, but now that they're repentant, you need to pursue them in love and restore this uh, relationship. All right. He says, therefore, as a result of that, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. 
For this end, I also write that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I forgive anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices, or some of your translations may even say of his schemes. Okay, so, so here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take a minute. I'm just going to walk through the main points really quick. Just restate them uh, about what what in this passage about the benefits of forgiveness so that you can see what forgiveness looks like. So you can contrast that uh, uh, against what we're going to talk about today. Now, uh, if you weren't here last week and and listen, uh, this is not self-serving. If you come here every week, you know that I never, never say this, uh, but I'm going to encourage you to pick up a copy of the message that was preached last week so that you can fully understand what forgiveness is. Uh, against the backdrop of what it's not uh, today. Okay, so so just real quick here, just to restate uh, uh, what forgiveness, uh, the benefits of it uh, that we looked at in this passage last week. Number one is forgiveness makes God's mercy tangible. In other words, the mercy of God is something that people don't always experience until it flows through our fingertips and our feet and our words. That the mercy of God becomes tangible in people's lives uh, when we choose to pursue forgiveness with them. It takes it from a theory to really actually experiencing the mercy of God. Uh, number two, uh, forgiveness restores the offender. That's what verses seven, eight talk about. In verses seven, eight, he just saying, hey, listen, uh, you've said it with your words, but you need to uh, comfort them. In other words, bend down and pick them up back out of the dirt. Remember, repentance is face in the dirt. And so it's not good enough just to say, hey, I forgive you. No, no, no. He says, move on to that and actually scoop them up, pick them up out of the dirt and restore the offender or the sinner in that situation. But uh, he said that forgiveness was a display of spiritual maturity. What, what did he say here in verse nine? He says, for this, then I also write that I might put you to the test. What test? Whether or not you're obedient in all things. And the level of obedience in my life is a direct uh, correlation to the level of spiritual maturity uh, that has taken place in my Christian walk, in my sanctification process. OK, so he say, hey, listen, one of the tests to see if you're really going to be obedient in all things, not just the things that come easy, is whether or not you're willing to forgive someone uh, who has offended you. And at a point in time, you had to deal uh, directly and maybe even some would think harshly with them. So he says forgiveness displays spiritual maturity. And then lastly, uh, we talked about last week is that forgiveness protects us spiritually against Satan's devices or against his schemes. You see, what happens is this. When I won't forgive someone, then bitterness crowds my heart. It crowds my heart and it blinds me in anger and wrath and all those things. And when it crowds my heart, guess what? There's no room for God to move. My heart is so full of bitterness. And what happens is I'm, I'm so blind to the work of God because of the bitterness has blinded me that I set myself up for the spiritual attack from Satan. And he begins to, to plant the seeds of bitterness in my heart. And if I'm not careful, those things will take root and they will destroy. Hear me. They will destroy every relationship in my circle of influence. All right. We can all give testimony of someone of this morning that the defining characteristic of their life in a negative way was bitterness. Something happened, someone did something, they didn't get some opportunity they thought they deserved, and so they just, their whole life is driven by bitterness, and they're a miserable person, and everyone around them knows it, because they've experienced that overflow uh, of that bitterness. So, that's what we talk about forgiveness does for us, how it benefits us, uh, and we also learned that, that forgiveness is a choice, alright? Not an emotion. And if you're waiting till you feel like forgiving, Satan will make sure that it never happens. You'll be locked in the prison of your own bitter emotions. And so forgiveness is not something that I feel. It's not an emotion. Forgiveness is a decision that I choose to make despite my feelings. All right. So that's what we look at. Last week. So so here's disclaimer number two. All right. And don't do this when you preach. Don't give disclaimers. 
Disclaimer number two is this. Uh, the, the volume of emails and the length of emails and the detail of some of the emails. I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to address everything in the next two hours, okay? Or 27 minutes and seven seconds, according to the time, right? Uh, listen, uh, I, I just, but here's what I've done. So I've taken all, listen, I've read every single email, every one. Some of them in my phone on the way back from Atlanta yesterday. Don't, don't do that either, okay? And so some of them had so much detail. And so, and so, he, so I can't, so what I did is I took them all and I categorized them into reoccurring themes. Hey, this is what they're really asking. This is what they're asking. They're asking a little different way, a little specifics. And if you kind of send me a lengthy, detailed email, I may not answer all the details in your email, but I'm going to hit the main thing and I will email you personally this week if you have a little more detail in your email and give you specific answers uh, to your questions because, because I want the, God's truth uh, to resonate in your heart. Okay, so, so it's just disclaimer number two. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I make two general statements and I'm just going to write into a Q&A. Okay, general statement number one about what forgiveness is not is this. Number one, forgiveness is not downplaying the hurt. All right. This is the mistake when people come to you and they know you're hurting. They know that you've experiencing, you know, struggling with some bitterness and that you've been hurt and offended. And here's what they say. And they say with sometimes even with a smile. All right. You just need to get over it. Right. And listen, can we just get honest? Isn't that incredibly helpful? That when someone gives that nugget of wisdom, you just need to get over it. All right. Uh, they, they trivialize it. You, you can't downplay the hurt because that, that's the thought process that says this. The smaller I make it, the easier it is to bury it. Listen, if something is alive and you bury it, it will come back. He said, you learn that in the word of God. No, I've seen Pet Cemetery. Remember that? For that cat? Meow! Jacked up. Remember? Yeah, I won't do that again. OK. And so so the idea here is this is not about making the hurt less. Hear me. It's not about making the hurt less. It's about making the gospel bigger. It's not about making the hurt less or trivializing. It's about making the gospel bigger. Now, the Bible says, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that his grace is sufficient for me in my times of weakness. OK, and one of those times of weaknesses is that when I've been hurt, I've been weak and I've been hurt. And, and, and until I come to the place where I say, God, I am hurt, I am wounded. I'm not trying to trivialize this. It, it is really painful. Only then can I draw from the grace of God. And only then when I when I honestly admit I've been hurt and I'm weak right now, can I realize that his grace is sufficient. OK, so, so it's not about downplaying or trivializing uh, the, the, the hurt or the offense in your life. All right. Here's the second thing. Uh, forgiveness is not forgiveness. And hear me this morning. Forgiveness is not forgetting. OK, how, how many of you at some point in time, someone or you heard or you read or you overheard someone say to forgive is to forget. How many of you have ever uh, heard that before? Right. Yeah. How many of you have heard that? And it's hard for me to stay seated when I'm preaching. How, how many of you have heard that and said this? Listen, if I could, I would. I would love to forget that ever happened. But the scars physically, emotionally. All those things, I, I, I cannot, as much as I've tried, I've prayed, I've fasted, I've cried out to God. God, take this from my memory. God, I, I can't. It's not a spiritual issue. It's a, it's a, the way that God has wired me up, the way that I think God has put my brain together. I, I absolutely cannot do it. And, uh, and so I've heard this say over and over. You cannot, uh, you, you cannot say you've forgiven unless you have also forgotten. All right. So, but let me just respond to that in the original Greek text. Baloney. And there's two spellings of that, so you pick whichever one you like, right? That's just not, it's not true. And if by forgiving a person literally means I, I, I just cannot literally recall the event, that's simply not true, all right? Now, if what they mean is this, 
that choosing not to remember it or choosing not to call it to mind, choosing not to dwell upon it, choosing not to meditate on that, then I would completely agree that is a key component of forgiveness. But I've heard it taught in a legalistic way, in an unbiblical way, and say, hey, listen, if you can remember it at all, then you haven't forgiven. And listen, hear me, that is simply not true. Now, where do people get that? I just got time to hit one verse this morning, but, but this would give you an idea uh, about where kind of people get this idea. So, so what happens sometimes is people take a verse... And they'll try to make it literal when it's when it's speaking in imagery or, or even hyperbole. Let, let me just give you some examples. I believe the Bible is literally true where it means to be true. All right. But there are times, obviously, the Bible uses imagery to convey a point. Let, let me give you an example. And some of you, this is really going to rock your theology this morning. OK, but let me let me tell you something. Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the father this morning. All right. Now, some of you think he just committed heresy. Let me just stone him. You know how I know that Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father? Because God is a non-corporeal being. He is a spirit. He does not have a physical body, so he does not have a right hand. The right hand of God is symbolic of the power of God and the favor of God. And so Jesus is, is residing at the place of God's power and God's favor, waiting to be released by God to redeem the world in the rapture and the second coming. But it's not a God doesn't have a literal right hand, okay? So, so that's, an, that's where the Bible, someone said, hey, it's literal. No, it's not speaking in literal terms. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, when it says the disciples turned the world upside down, they really didn't, okay? It, they're speaking in hyperbole, saying, hey, they made a huge impact. I mean, they just, they, they turned that place on its ear, right? So, so Bible's literal or it means to be literal. So, so here's what happens. People don't understand that, so they take this verse. Hebrews 10, 17. Uh, speaking of God, says, their sins and their lawless acts, I will remember no more. Now, some people say, see, uh, literally, God is saying that he can't remember it. Can I tell you something about God? God's never forgotten anything. It's not a part of his nature. As a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God, there, there's not a single thing that God ever has forgotten. OK, what it means there is God chooses not to bring it to bring it to his attention in the sense of holding that sin against us. Once we've re uh, repented of that. OK, it doesn't mean that God goes, you know what? What was that thing they did? What was that? What was that? Oh, all right. So, but some people take that and say, listen, that's what God does. God can't even remember. No, no, no. God chooses not to bring it to his attention. God chooses not to use it to punish us once we've repented is what he's talking about. So forgiveness is not, not the same as forgetting. That's an extra biblical uh, idea there. But if you mean that forgiveness means I'm not going to call it to mind, if I'm not going to uh, dwell on that, then yes, I agree completely uh, with that. Claire Barton, I love this story. She's the founder of the Red Cross and she was talking with a friend one day. And the name of that person, they knew both came up and years before that, that person had done just some horrible, horrible things uh, to Claire Barton. And the friend asked Barton, they said, don't you remember what they did to you? How are you saying such kind things? Don't you remember what they did to you? And, and here's what Claire Barton, she said, no. She said, as a matter of fact, I distinctly remember forgetting that. All right. In other words, she said, I distinctly remember choosing not to dwell or bring that to mind and nurse my bitterness uh, because of that. All right. So so just some general principles about forgiveness. So well, let's just move right into Q&A and just a little more of a, a chat, I guess. All right. Forgiveness Q&A. Here, here's question number one. Does forgiveness mean I have to let people walk all over me? And that's a legit fear that if I forgive them, I'm giving them, them permission to do again what they did before on the offense. I'm trying to forgive them uh, in the first place. So let me give the answer this really clearly. No, not even close. Not even close. Uh, forgiveness is a refusal to go on the offensive. It's the refusal to seek vengeance. Uh, Romans twelve nineteen, Living Bible, we looked at this last week, says never avenge yourselves, 
Leave that to God, for he has said that he will repay those who deserve it. So while refusal is the uh, a, a, a desire or a choice not to go on the offense, it is not the same as protecting yourself against injustice. You get that? I'm choosing not to go and seek vengeance, but that's not the same as protecting myself against injustice that comes along me. And when people don't understand that and it's been taught uh, incorrectly and things, that's how abuse happens in the church. That, that's how people say, well, why did you let them back in again after what they did to you? Well, I forgave them. No, no, no. It's not the same thing. It's, it's not a refusal to protect yourself against injustice, especially in a case where someone's did it over and over and over again. Refusal, uh, forgiveness is the refusal to seek vengeance, not the protection against injustice. Injustice, fundamental difference uh, between the two. Now, let me, let me dig a little deeper on this one, all right? There is a big difference. There is a big difference uh, between how you respond to injustice and why you respond to injustice. How you respond to injustice and why you respond to injustice. That there are times when the only appropriate action to push back injustice is to have a direct, uh, a direct conversation or even a confrontation for someone who's habitually sinning against someone else. All right. Uh, and, and to be silent, to be silent would be giving approval to what they're doing. All right. These, these are the times when we can say with integrity, I could not sit there and be silent. All right. So so that so that's the why. But let me talk to you about the how. If you say, hey, this was injustice and I could not be silent because to be silent would be getting my stamp of approval on them. But if your motive is anger and wrath and bitterness and vengeance and all those things, then guess what? You are just as guilty as sin as they are, because your motive is not is not uh, stopping injustice. Your motive at that point is vengeance. I'm angry and sinful anger at this point. Bitterness is fueling this conversation. You see the difference between the two? It, it, it's, not, it's not just why you're doing it. It's how you're doing it and the spirit that you're doing it. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 20 says this. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And so before I go to that person and, and, and confront them, that it may be the biblically appropriate thing to do, guess what? I've got to make sure that my heart and my motive is pure, that I'm trying to push back injustice, not pursue vengeance in that situation. Let me just give you some personal testimony. Sometimes in my own life, between the decision to confront injustice and actually having the conversation, I've got to have some downtime. Can I get a witness this morning? I've got to wait till... Before I can engage in that conversation, because if not, I'll be just as guilty of sin in my anger towards them as their injustice towards me. All right. Great question. Uh, question number two. What should relationships look like on a practical uh, day to day basis in a forgiven context? So someone's been repentant. They've asked for my forgiveness. Uh, uh, you know, I've said, hey, I forgive you. And then uh, do we just pretend do we just like walk around and just you know, like, on eggshells? How, how does that actually work? Well, listen, I'm going to take you back to the process of forgiveness that we looked at last week. Not because I couldn't think of anything else to say. All right. But because it's exactly what it should look like. And so if you didn't write this down, I would encourage you to write this down right now, because here's here's the deal. If you're going to rub shoulders on this earth with other people, forgiveness is going to be a part of any enduring relationship. And you need to understand the process of forgiveness because you're going to have to rehearse it multiple times sometimes uh, with, with some offense. All right. So in the decision of forgiveness, we say, I choose to forgive you. But in the process of forgiveness, we say, I will treat you as though it never happened if you're genuinely repentant. 
So, what does that look like? I'm just going to rehearse exactly what we said last week. You can write this down. Uh, the process step number one is this. I won't bring the offense up to the person except for their benefit. So I, I say I've forgiven. There's been repentance. I, I, and so what does that look like to live in, in a relationship with someone after that point? It means I don't bring it up again except for their benefit. That every time that, that we get into an argument and I'm not winning, that, that I pull that old offense that I said I forgave, I pull that out of my back pocket and it's a trump card in every argument. And at that point in time, I say, well, listen, let's talk about what you did. You, you want to start throwing stones. Remember what you did last week, last year, five decades ago. Okay. Step number two, I won't bring the offense up to others. Every time that I get an audience in my circle of influence, I'm not going, hey, I don't know if I told you this, but you, but you know what they did to me? No, no, let's listen. That's not what it looks like in living in the context of a genuine uh, forgiveness uh, relationship when it's been granted. And step number three, I won't bring the offense up to myself. I won't bring it to mind. I won't nurse that anger. I won't dwell on it. I won't let bitterness take root in my heart. How do you know if that's happened? How do you know if, 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 if you bring it to mind more often what you're always, how do you know if bitterness has taken root to your heart? It's real simple. The Bible says clearly that the overflow of my heart comes out of my mouth. All right? So the Bible says. And so how do I know if bitterness has taken root in my heart and I'm dwelling on it more than I even want to admit? Real simple. Do you bring it up to that person or anybody else who will listen? You can't help talk about it. Why? Because out of the mouth is the overflow of the heart. All right? So that, that, that's what relationships should look like. You just walk through that process until uh, bitterness has totally, totally just left your heart. Right, question number three. How, how do you ward off bitterness when extended family members that you love do not recognize or acknowledge their sinful behavior uh, that they have demonstrated for years? Uh, I don't want to isolate myself from them as I'm trying to be a witness in my prayers that one day they'll accept Christ. What, what, a, what, a, what a great motive. All right, here's the answer. We ward off bitterness by, re, by going through over and over the process of forgiveness that I just talked about. Over and over and over until the point where bitterness no longer uh, resides in your heart and dwells in your mind. And listen, there are some times that a hurt is so deep, you'll, you'll go through that process for a long, long time. It's not like, oh, I went through that, I'm done. No, no, no. You'll rehearse it over and over and over until you can say with integrity, bitterness has left me. I'm no longer vengeance. I don't have to bring it up to them. I'm not talking to anyone else about it. So we ward off bitterness by the process of forgiveness. Uh, now, now, here's the other thing. We also have a biblical responsibility to hold others accountable to their sin when they're unaware of it. And so sometimes, not all the time, matter of fact, not the majority of the time, sometimes the reason someone keeps injuring you is they're absolutely ignorant. And I don't mean that in a slang way. I mean, they're just not even aware that what they're doing is offensive. They don't realize how that comes across. They don't realize how those words hurt you. I just had a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago who they said, you know what? Uh, this person in my circle of influence and in my extended family, they say this all the time. They don't think anything about it. It is so injuring to me. And I said, have you let them know that? No. You see, you can't expect repentance of sin when there's no awareness of sin. Now, what if they're aware and they're unrepentant? I'm going to, and we're going to deal with that in, in just a little bit, okay? But great question. Uh, question number four. Does forgiveness always lead to reconciliation? In other words, this person, we were, we were, you know, we were like this, and then we were like this, and I've forgiven them, so do we have to go back to like this? All right? The answer is no. Forgiveness is one thing. Reconciliation is something else. Reconciliation requires forgiveness, but forgiveness does not demand full reconciliation. Forgiveness depends on, on me and what I do in my own heart. Reconciliation depends on me and someone else and how they respond and where their heart is and whether or not they're repentant. 
And whether or not they've said they're repentant, but it was worldly sorrow as evidenced by the fact they keep going back to that sin and doing it over and over and over again. Okay? And so reconciliation is dependent on two people. Forgiveness is dependent on me. Those are not the same things. And, and hear me again. This is how abuse happens. That I've said I forgive. And so forgiveness means full reconciliation of a relationship to its prior condition. No, that's not the case. And sometimes that's incredibly unwise. You see, I don't know if I totally agree with that. Let me just put it right, right in your right in your kitchen. All right. If someone abused one of your children that they were close to. Would you go back to them and say, have you forgiven? Yes. Let go of that bitterness. Yes. Okay, then you need, I'm going to drop you off at their house again to watch you again today. You would never, listen, you would never say that. Why? Because forgiveness and full reconciliation are not the same thing. They may be desired, but they may be impossible, depending on where that person's heart at, or it may be even unwise. Because that person's habitual sin and no time to, to see the fruits of repentance in that life. All right. Romans twelve eighteen. Any scriptural support for this? Yes. Romans twelve eighteen says this. If it's possible. So what's implied there? Sometimes it's not possible. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Guess what? Sometimes even if the best I can do, it's not possible to live in a peaceful, healthy relationship with everyone. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Make every effort to live in peace with all men. What it did not say is live in peace with all men. Listen, the Bible does not teach peace at all costs. The Bible teaches truth at all costs. And so make every effort to live in peace. But guess what? Sometimes your efforts will not have a, uh, a fruitful outcome. All right. Question number five, I think. Is this five? Yep. Yeah, you don't know. You don't care. All right. All right. Hey, listen, question five. Are we called to seek forgiveness in any certain way or grant forgiveness only when asked a certain way? For example... I'm sorry, I apologize, and please forgive me. Are they biblically equivalent when it comes to asking for forgiveness or being obligated to grant it? So, uh, do these all, are they all the same thing, or is it a specific phrase that, you know, when you're really repentant, when you really, you know, then you use the, this, the words you would use, okay? Uh, listen. The power of words are not the letters and syllables that form them. The power of words is their attachment to the affections and motives of your heart. It's not the, the letters or the syllables and how they're formed and the sounds they make. It's how they're attached to the motive and affections of your heart. I quoted this verse earlier, Matthew twelve thirty four. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs four twenty three. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So whatever's in my heart will come out in, in the wellspring or the words or the actions of my life. And so the important thing is not the word choice. The important thing is are the overflow of the heart. Is, is it a reflection of a person's heart? So can you be legalistic and say, no, no, it requires this phrase, this word choice, these letters, these syllables? Absolutely not. You cannot be legalistic and say it can only be granted or received or asked for using these specific letters uh, arranged this specific way. The issue is, do the words reflect the motive of a person's heart? That's the power of speech. It's what James talks about as well. Now, however, let me add this caveat. Okay? Will you forgive me? That, that phrase? Will you forgive me? Does imply an ownership of wrongdoing to someone else. Now, I'm sorry could mean I'm sorry for the consequences. I'm sorry I got caught. All right. But but I'm sorry could also be a genuine expression of brokenness. 
But will you forgive me does have implied in the language that I have an offense against you. And I confess that as a part of that statement. Will you forgive me? That, that's the language of our choice uh, in our house. We, we don't, our kids, we don't do I'm sorry. We say, no, 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 we don't say I'm sorry. What do we say? Will you forgive me? I'm not legalistic about it, but that's our preferred uh, phrase of choice. But you cannot be legalistic about it. The only thing that matters about the word choice is are they an accurate reflection of a heart that's repentant for the person? The motive of the heart, not the words and the letters are what's important. So, so, but here's my final advice. Here's what I would do. I'd go to that person, whether it's your wife, your kids, somebody in your circle of influence, your parents, whatever. I'd, here's, here's what I'd do. You know what love is? Love's not a feeling. I'm hooked on a... Yeah, that's my favorite hymn. Okay? So, not true. Love has emotions attached to it, but ultimately love is a decision to put the needs of someone else above my own needs. I don't even feel like doing that sometimes, okay? And so in that, in that, that, in that vein of love, I put, not, listen, I don't choose, listen, I, I feel more comfortable saying I'm sorry. No, no, no. When I love someone, I go to them and say, hey, listen, if we ever get an argument now, listen, our house, Tasha and I, we've been married uh, almost 15 years. We have never had an argument in 15 years. We have had on occasion some intense moments of fellowship, all right? Never an argument. And so here's what I would do. I would just go say, hey, listen, we're going to have, we're going to have arguments. It's part of marriage, part of life, part of relationships. What would be more meaningful to you? What would carry more weight in your heart? Is it I'm sorry? Is it is it I forgive you? And then they say, you know what? When you say I forgive you, it shows ownership. Or, or they may say, you know what? Listen, the fact that you mouthed it is, is enough for me. Uh, it doesn't really matter to me. Okay. But that's what I do. I just say, hey, what, what, what would express to you genuine repentance on my part? And what are your needs in that above my own, what I feel comfortable with? All right. Question number, uh, the next question, let's just say that. All right. Do people who are bitter think that withholding forgiveness over someone uh, actually gives them the upper hand in the relationship? Well, in other words, they're saying, why do people do that? Do they think it actually gives them some kind of upper hand in the relationship? Uh, in my experience, the answer is no. That's not their motive. It's not that I'm in the upper hand. Uh, occasionally, I have had some people uh, who are just incredibly wicked and manipulative, and they think if they say, I forgive you, then no one can control that person through guilt. So, so I, I have seen at times. But most of the time, the reason people don't do that is, is because of this. Because it feels too cheap. It feels too quick. It feels too easy. It feels like I'm letting them off the hook or saying what they did was okay. And so I'm going to withhold those words even after they've repented. Listen, that's unbiblical. It's vengeful. It's punitive. It's not redemptive. Uh, but that is why people do that, because it just feels cheap and easy and letting them off the hook. All right. The next question, while I have may have forgiven the offender, uh, do I have to choose to expose myself or my family to that individual in the future? Can I not forgive someone, but then choose uh, to keep that person away from me or my family because I do not think they are a good influence? The answer is uh, unequivocally yes. Again, forgiveness does not equal uh, full reconciliation of the relationship to its prior condition, nor is it always wise to do that. Now, you do not have the option, biblically, of holding on to the bitterness internally. But you do have the option of choosing not to restore that relationship. You do not have the option of seeking vengeance. You do not have the option of telling everyone who will listen how they hurt you and offend you if you've truly forgiven, if you've released that bitterness. But you do have the option to say, hey, in the course of wisdom, knowing what I know, how habitual this has been, trying to sit back and give them time to, to bear fruits of repentance. It's just not wise for us to be in that circle, that relationship anymore. It's become damaging to me or, or someone in, in my family. Yeah, but great, great, great question. OK, uh, does forgiveness eliminate accountability? Forgiveness eliminate accountability? No. Forgiveness is not the absence of future accountability. 
And let me tell you how I understand people don't get that. In a marriage context, and listen, guys have a harder time with this because guys are linear in their relationships. Guys get into a fight on the basketball court. By the time they get to the water fountain, they're high-fiving. They're just guys like, well, that's back there. Women are a little more circular. That's why, that's why we joke and say, uh, when you get to argue with your wife, she doesn't get hysterical. She gets historical. She can go back like real quick. Just says how God wired us up, all right? So, um, but, but here's the deal. It's not the absence of future accountability. And so, guys, when your wife says, I forgive you, but then kind of brings, brings it up again because she sees you heading down the road and you respond, hey, you said you forgave me. Listen, that's not a lack of forgiveness. That's biblical accountability. And we don't like that. Let's just be honest. We don't like to be held accountable, but it is a crucial, crucial element in, in discipleship. Letting someone else lean into you. Remember step one in the process of forgiveness? I will not bring that to the other person except for their benefit. When's it beneficial? I see you heading down the same road. We all know how this turns out. Everybody's hurt. I love you too much to sit back and be silent. So I'm going to speak up, not out of vengeance, but to stop injustice. So forgiveness does not eliminate accountability. You need someone to, to, to examine, based on your uh, words and your actions, the motives of your heart, because Jeremiah 17 clearly says that our heart is wicked and deceitful and deceives us more than we care uh, to admit. Okay, uh, next question. Does forgiveness remove consequences? No, let me, give you, let me give you some biblical examples. All right. Adam and Eve violated God's word. and They were responsible for introducing sin into the universe. Uh, one of the consequences of their sin was they were expelled from, from the garden. Could they be forgiven? Yes. God clothed them. Remember that God made that sacrifice and clothed them. That's a picture of repentance and God extending grace to them, uh, reconciling that relationship. But were they expelled still from the garden? Yes. They may have been forgiven, but their consequences weren't removed. Esau was guilty of profanity when he sold his birthright. Hebrews 12. Uh, could he be forgiven? Yes. Could he regain his birthright? No. Hebrews 12, 17 says, though he sought it diligently with tears. There's a consequence. Uh, the adult population of the nation of Israel sinned when they refused to obey God, proceeding with a military assault against the land of Canaan. Uh, that's in Numbers 14. Could they be forgiven? Yes. Were they? Numbers 14 says, yes, they were. Were they permitted to enter the promised land? No. They were doomed to wander in the desert for 40 years as a consequence of their sin. Moses, remember that? Uh, Moses and people are complaining, oh, this is horrible. You should have left us in Egypt. And back there, we had great things to eat. And, you know, have you brought us out here to die? And Moses gets all stirred up as the leader. And God says, hey, I want you to do this. Speak to the rock and it'll produce water. Moses, in a fit of anger, strikes the rock. Strikes the rock and water comes forth. Now, could he be forgiven for that? Absolutely. The Bible says in heaven, we'll sing the song of Moses. So obviously he's forgiven. Was he able to end the promised land? No. He died on the other side looking. He could see it. But the consequence of his sin was not removed. I'll give you, I'll give you, listen, I've got multiple other examples written down for the sake of time. Listen, the answer is really clear. Listen, forgiveness does not equal the removal of consequences. You have that conversation with your kids. Hey, listen, you've sinned and I love you. You are forgiven. But the consequences are not going away. Not because I'm mean, but because forgiveness does not equal the removal of consequences. All right. Now, let me give this a little caveat. And by the way, I'm going to go over a few minutes. Are you okay with that? Yep. All right. Okay. Uh, listen, um, let, let me just say this about consequences. Consequence of the natural overflow of my actions. All right. You are not to be the initiator, determiner or facilitator of consequences on God's behalf in someone else's life. In other words, someone's hurt you, they, they've injured you. And so you in return say nasty, hurtful things to them under the spiritual banner of, well, these are the consequences of your sin. No, no, let's just get honest. That's bitterness and it's sin. 
that the consequence, the natural consequence of their action is this. It's going to take some time to rebuild trust. It's going to take some time to observe the deeds of repentance. Acts 26 to observe the fruits of repentance. Luke chapter three, verse eight. That's the consequences. Trust being rebuilt. All those things. But you're not the facilitator. Uh, you're not you're not the determiner. You now listen, you may have to submit yourself to a higher level of accountability, but it's not your job to make sure that God's consequences are carried out on that person's life. That let's just call that what it is. That's vengeance. It's vengeance and it's sin. OK, now. I've saved the big one for last. The number of uh, questions I got were, were probably three to one on, on this issue. And here it is. How do we forgive when the other person is not repentant. When they won't say they're sorry, they don't admit they're wrong, they won't apologize, they won't confess it, etc., etc. There, there are all kinds of ways uh, people phrase it. Okay, first off, let's just get honest. It's incredibly hard. Because when your heart has been torn open and a person's not repentant, won't confess it, won't apologize, won't please, all they're doing, that is salt in, the, in an open heart. That is salt in the wind. Incredibly difficult. Alright, but, but here's what the Bible says. Luke 17, 3 says this. If another believer sins against you, rebuke that person. Then if conditional, then if there is repentance, forgive. All right. How do I know if there is? Listen, write this down. Truth and time go hand in hand. Truth and time go hand in hand. And if a person is genuinely repentant, godly sorrow, we talked about two weeks ago, it'll show up in their deeds. Acts 26, it'll show up in the fruit born out of their life. Luke chapter three. But if it's worldly sorrow, which is, I'm sorry, I got caught. Guess what? Truth and time go hand in hand. And so here, here's the deal. When the, when the Bible says that if, if there's not repentance and, and, and I've not had time to evaluate it or, or clearly they're not. Or they just said, you know what? Uh, here, here's my all time favorite. If I've offended you, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. It meant a lot to me, right? I want you to think of forgiveness horizontally. I want you to think of this way, and I think this will help you. It's two phases. Number one, it's releasing the bitterness. Choosing not to nurse the anger. Choosing not to pursue vengeance. Choosing not to bring it up to punish them. That's step number one in, in horizontal forgiveness between other people. Phase one, releasing the bitterness. And, and hear me this morning, it's not optional. It is a biblical mandate to forgive at the level of the heart. Phase two Restoring the relationship. And that's optional. And there may be a time where you say, you know what, I've released that bitterness. I'm not going to nurse on it. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to tell other people about it. I'm not wishing uh, ill on them. I'm not delighting when their life falls to pieces and saying, I told you so. I've, been, I've released, but because of their habitual, unrepentant sin, I cannot wisely restore that relationship. Not only is it not wise, look, 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 hear me this morning. Not only is it not wise, what you're doing is this. In that context, you're extending cheap grace to them. You know what the, what, what the catalyst is for, for grace? It's repentance. And when there's repentance, God, God pours out His grace and so should we. But when someone's unrepentant, won't acknowledge it, won't confess it, not broken about it, and you say, hey, listen, I've forgiven you, you've not helped them at all. You've extended cheap grace to them and that will, be, that will inoculate them against coming to the place of genuine repentance, which is the hinge that growth and change swings on. But hear me this morning. Grace may be free, but it's not cheap because it costs God everything. And while grace may be opposed to earning, grace is not opposed to effort. You hear that? Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. 
All right. I got a little stirred up, so I had to stand up. All right. To forgive apart from repentance is, is to extend cheap grace. Now, and, and I know we're over. So I'm just going to I'm going to pick up the pace for it. All right. Uh, Luke 17, three, uh, you know, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. John Calvin, uh, uh, 400 years ago, wrote a little commentary on that verse. Here, here's what he said. He said, there are two kinds of forgiveness. The first kind is where the person who did the wrong admits it comes to you as forgiveness. You grant it and the relationship is restored. That's the best kind. That's ideal. Unfortunately, in this fallen world, the ideal is not always possible. Sometimes people who have wronged us will not admit their guilt no matter what we do. In fact, sometimes they lie to cover up the truth. Sometimes they'll cut off the relationship rather than face the hard work of reconciliation and repentance. Sometimes they'll keep right on hurting us on purpose. You can forgive even that situation in the sense you, don't, you let go of the rope of anger and bitterness and refuse to let the hurt dominate your own life. But the relationship still may be broken. It may never be healed. But you can choose not to dwell on the sin so that your life is free from bitterness and vengeance. And I say to John Calvin in heaven, that's a good word, brother. That is a good, good word. Now, phase one, releasing the bitterness, not dwelling, not seeking vengeance, not bringing up other people. Let me, get, let me give you some good news. Doesn't matter what the other person does. You see, forgiveness in that aspect of the heart level has nothing to do with how that person responds, repentant or unrepentant. And you can be free from that bitterness. Don't let someone else, their lack of repentance, enslave you in bitterness because some of them are so wicked they'll do it just just because they can control you through guilt restoring the relationship is a two-way street releasing the bitterness is not totally different message totally different style uh and and so when we come in here i and uh i don't even know how to wrap it up right and and so here's what i've decided the only enough this is the best, best it's only i come up with here's what you do I want you to bow your heads.